Well, how is everybody doing? I would like to welcome you into the 24th episode of the We Geeks podcast, and this is going to be a slightly lonesome We Geeks podcast this week because Howard is not here. Howard, are you there? Can you confirm? See, he's not here. He is out in L.A. right now at VidCon. Uh, We are going to have him on the phone, actually, of all things, a little bit later on in the show uh, when we talk a little bit about VidCon, me and my my minuscule amount of knowledge that I have about VidCon. Um, And with that, let's just get into the show. So it's the 24th episode of the We Geeks podcast. I wanted to make sure that we kept the train rolling, uh, despite, like I said, Howard not being here. But that's no big deal. He's cool with what we're doing. Uh, You can follow me on Twitter. I'm Nathaniel Dodson. I am at Tutvid. That's T-U-T-V-I-D. Or you can go check out my website, tutvid.com. You can also follow Howard uh, at Iceflow Studios. That's at Iceflow Studios. Uh, And you can link up with him. He's got a lot of great content and stuff that he shares uh, over there on his Twitter. Um, You can find any of the stories that I talk about in the podcast in this week's news and topic uh, at over on my website, actually, tutvid.com slash wegeeks slash episode 24. And that's the number 24. Uh, You can also follow us on SoundCloud. That's soundcloud.com slash wegeeks. That's probably the best way to follow us. They've got a great commenting system. You can comment right in line with uh, the recording. So right at the moment you hear something you like or dislike, bam, go ahead, leave a comment. That's super cool. Uh, And of course, you can follow us on iTunes. If you follow us on iTunes, leave us a review. Reviews are always cool. They're a lot of fun to read. Um, And also for the Android users, you can also follow us on Stitcher. Uh, now, every week, Howard and I like to shout out to our Patreon supporters. If you love the show, you love the podcast, throw us a few bucks on Patreon. That's super cool. We will never complain about that. Uh, so we have a few supporters that I want to shout out this week. That's Genevieve, Craig, Jordan, my man Michael, Roberto, also my man Roberto. We talk a bit on uh, Twitter. And also Caleb, he's been a longtime supporter. Uh, and Steve as well. We love you all. We're so glad that you're listening um, and, of course, supporting as well. So with all of that out of the way, uh, let's jump into the news. We've got a few interesting uh, topics to talk about in the news this week. Um, and I'm also doing a bit of a sort of a solo session in the show uh, where we're going to talk about the future of Photoshop in web design. I recently did a video entitled Is Web Design Dead over on my YouTube channel, Tutvid, uh, talking about this article that I'd seen. I believe it was on Mashable.com where the author of the article was putting forth this idea that web design is dead uh, and that that, you know, it was a very painted a very bleak picture. I'll put it to you that way of web design in general. So we're going to talk about uh, as kind of the main theme of the show after the news, what the future of Photoshop is in web design, and really just the changing landscape of web design. Because I do believe that web design is changing. I absolutely do not believe that web design is dead. So let's get into the news. News of the week. Uh, the first story is Taylor Swift's concert photo contract has been changed uh, to be more photographer-friendly. Now, if you've been following the show or just following photography news at all in general, uh, you you heard that we had talked about, and a number of uh, websites, F-Stoppers, Petapixel, among others, uh, had talked about Taylor Swift's concert photography contract, which was very uh, lopsided, uh, if I'm going to use the term. It was, it was quite lopsided. Um, photographers could come in, they could shoot the photos, but they were allowed to use them once and 
no more than once, and they had certain there, there was all kinds of limitations. And essentially, um, the the contract at points was so extreme that it said that uh, Taylor Swift and her staff had the right to break or destroy the photographer's equipment if X, Y, or Z stipulations were not met or broken or whatever it was. Um, whereas her new contract for concert photographers has been revised simply to state that photographers who violate the agreement, quote, may be asked to delete those images, unquote. Uh, and publications of photographers will also be able to publish the photos more than once as long as it's not for news or editorial slash commercial, commercial usage. Um, so it's pretty cool because it seems like Taylor Swift and her legal team or her social media team or whoever's involved with her PR in general definitely saw the outcry from people on social media and the photographers in the, the photographic community, especially the concert photography community, um, and, and just the way they had kind of responded to her uh, initial contract. So they went, they revised it. Um, and it seems to be a fairly positive revision. Um, I'm not really a concert photographer. I've shot a couple concerts, but by no means would I consider myself a true concert photographer. So I'd love to see what people uh, like Jared Polin of Frono's Photo has to say about something like this, um, as well as maybe some of the original people who brought up or, or sort of outed the Taylor Swift contract in the first place. So it's just cool to see uh, an artist as huge as Taylor Swift. I mean, remember a few weeks ago, she essentially had Apple bow to her wishes when she said, look, I'm not putting my album or I'm not going to uh, subject my music to this free Apple Music uh, trial if Apple is not going to pay the artists for that that three-month trial period. That's not fair to this, the, the little guys, essentially, um, where she was sort of sticking up for these smaller artists. So to see somebody as big and as influential as she is uh, be able to turn and, and, and really, in the grand scheme of things, concert photographers are nothing. Um, so... You know, to to and that's not that's not to um, demean a concert photographer. I'm just saying there's you know what, fifteen thousand true concert photographers in the country. Um, you know, compared to her her actual fan base of millions upon millions upon tens of millions, concert photographers are a very small small number of people. So to see that she cares about a small minuscule number of people, which is essentially nothing when compared with her greater uh, constituency. Uh, it's really cool to see that and see her make that change. So again, like I said, it'll be interesting to see what the legitimate concert photographers have to say about it. So on to the next piece of news. Sigma has released, officially re released, they had announced a, a little while ago, a 24 to 35 millimeter F2 art lens uh, for a thousand bucks. It costs $999. You can pre-order it on B&H Photo right now. It is... If you hear uh, the focal length, 24 millimeters to 35 millimeters. Typically, a, a lens like this, um, well, there isn't really a lens like this on the market, I guess, first, I should say. But typically, your 24 to whatever lens is going to be a 24 to 70 lens. Uh, Canon's 24 to 70 Mark II with image stabilization built in is about... $2,200 or $2,300, something like that, and you have the long focal range of 24 millimeters, a very wide-angle lens, especially on a full-frame camera, all the way zoomed into 70 millimeters at f2.8. Um, a couple things. The Sigma 2435 
you really don't want to think about it like a zoom lens because it's not. It's not a zoom lens. It's number one, it's an f2 lens. Uh, so the aperture stops all the way down to f2. So that's a full stop uh, of additional light that's being allowed in over an f2.8 lens. That's number one. Um, but also, typically, lenses like this, when you stop them all the way down, you, you open them all the way up. Let's say it's, let's just say it's this lens and you're, you're shooting at f2, you know, a true f2. Uh, typically, the lens is not very sharp. The, there's a lot of chromatic aberration. A lot of times, you'll get pretty severe lens vignetting. And there is a bit of lens vignetting on this lens. Uh, but lens vignetting, in general, is fairly easy to take care of uh, in something like Lightroom or Camera Raw or Capture One Pro, uh, things like that. So it's, it's, it, you don't really want to think about it as a, a zoom lens. When I first saw this lens announced, I saw a lot of people saying, this kind of seems pointless. You know, it's a it's a focal range of 11 millimeters. It barely moves from 24 to 35. Um, well, number one, that is a huge focal range. I mean, it's not 24 to 200 millimeters, sure, but 24 to 35 includes three very vital and very widely used and very three very very important focal lengths, especially for an editorial photographer. A, I would say a cinematographer and a wedding photographer. So to have a lens where you have a 24 millimeter prime lens, a 28 millimeter prime lens, and a 35 millimeter prime lens all baked into one is extraordinary. And to get it at a thousand bucks is incredible. And again, I only consider this like three prime lenses in one because I've seen the raw files at shot at f2 on this lens and they are amazing. They're really, really incredible. The sharpness of this lens is great. I'm seriously considering getting this lens. I would love to see how it performs with video. There is no image stabilization, um, but for the most part, the video that I'm shooting, I mean, I guess I shoot a little bit on a shoulder rig, um, but I do a lot of shooting right off of a tripod. So to see this lens um, in some kind of video setting would be great, but I would probably end up getting it anyway. Um, I mean, just to have that 24, 28, and 35 millimeter lens all in one at a constant aperture of f2 for a thousand bucks. And by the way, it's a Sigma art lens, and Sigma's art lenses are renowned. The 35 millimeter art lens is amazing. The 50 millimeter art lens is amazing. People are dying for them to release their 85 millimeter art lens. They're just incredible lenses. I know it's Sigma. You, you're probably shooting either Sony or Nikon or Canon, and you think, oh, I need to get a proprietary Canon lens or Nikon or, or Sony, whatever. Sigma's art lenses are amazing, and they come at a fraction of the price. Highly, highly recommend checking this out. Um, again, Sigma 24-35 f2 art lens. Uh, definitely, you want to go check it out. A thousand bucks. I think this may be the photographic steal of 2015 uh, if I'm right about this lens. So it's 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 available for pre-order on B&H right now. Uh, so moving on. We have a pretty cool video that I found this week or I saw earlier this week of this extreme mountain biker uh, named Brandon Seminuk, I believe is his name. Uh, it was really pretty cool. This, this company, Teton Gravity Research and Ant Hill, sort of combined to release this short film, if you if you want to call it that. It's really just a video um, on YouTube, um, and I'm going to have this over on the website, again, uh, tutvid.com slash wegeeks slash episode 24. Basically, it's
it's this. I mean, Brandon uh, Brandon Semenuk is I, uh, allegedly. I don't really follow extreme sports all that much. One of the top mountain bikers in the world. The, this slope style mountain biking where you're racing down the side of a dirt mountain and you're hitting ramps and doing flips and all these different uh, tricks and things that you're doing with these bikes. Um, they shoot this video of him essentially walking up, getting on the bike, and then in one continuous shot. It's as if a drone is sort of following him all around um, when he is uh, riding down the hill. It's really a, a very well shot piece, and it's just one single continuous video shot. It's really pretty cool how they've done it. Um, and it turns out it was done by placing a gyro-stabilized camera, a GSS-C520, uh, mounting it on the back of a pickup truck, and then driving through or on a custom road that was built alongside of the mountain biking path. It took the company three weeks just to build the road. It's definitely worth checking out. It's just a, a short little piece over on YouTube. Again, I'll have it linked um, in the blog post, tutvid.com slash wegeek slash episode 24. Uh, so it's neat to see stuff like that, and uh, I, I guess pretty cool uh, seeing it done with the truck as opposed to the drone. Um, I didn't, to be honest with you, look into it to see why they didn't use a why they didn't use a drone, excuse me, rather than the truck. Um, it, it definitely has a different feel than drone video, which I would imagine is part of the reason why. Um, but yeah, I mean, check it out. I, I would, it would it would be cool to. Um, to see what you think about it. Um, now, speaking of drones, there is a uh, a company over in the UK called Blighter Surveillance that is developing uh, an anti-drone combat system. So with the rise of all this drone usage all over the place, uh, you also get the rise of idiot drone users, people who don't understand or, or don't seem to comprehend, hey, I probably shouldn't take my drone into this situation or that situation. Now, that being said, I'm a big proponent. I'm a big fan of anything to get the shot, you know, uh, all in the name of a good photo, that kind of thing. Um, so I don't necessarily, um, I can't fault risky drone usage, but there are definitely times when you need to think about what you're doing and be ready to lose your drone uh, if, you know, a firefighter, for instance, decides to shoot your drone down out of midair uh, with a water cannon. Um, drones have been, I mean, they've been uh, disrupting sporting events. You can find videos on YouTube of you know, people flying them out over, you know, a soccer pitch or a football pitch, I should say. Uh, all kinds of things like that. Recently, there was a uh, an event you could call it an incident in San Bernardino County, California, where there's some firefighters fighting a, a massive forest fire, and they couldn't even drop the flame retardant from the aircraft uh, that they were trying to fly above the fire because there were a, a number of drones actually flying far above the legal limit. Um, and in fact, the U.S. Forestry Services had placed a restriction on aircraft flying above that forest fire as it was, I would uh, presumably because of these aircraft that they were using to drop uh, these different uh, retardants down on this fire. Um, and the U.S. Forest Service says that that incident alone cost them ten grand. It's $10,000. Um, so enter the anti-drone systems. Again, like I said, this company, Blighter Surveillance in the U.K., they've developed this system designed to use radar to automatically detect it automatically detects a drone that sort of flies into the restricted space. It will track it if you want. It can disrupt uh, the systems of the drone, or it can full out take the drone down out of the sky. Um, it's really pretty cool. There's a video, and again, the the article, the info will be over on the article on tutvid.com. Um, but it's really neat how this works, where it sort of latches on. It looks very much like a modern weapons system uh, that you would see, like in an F-16 or an F-22 fighter plane. 
uh, the way it just it latches on, it detects the drone, it determines whether or not the drone is what I guess they would consider a hostile drone, uh, some, something that's not supposed to be there, unauthorized, something like that, and you can disrupt it, you can take control of it, uh, or you can just flat out take it out of the sky. Now the catch with the system is that it costs a million dollars, about a million dollars. So it's not something that you know your uncle is going to take um, and install in his backyard. Uh, but definitely something I could see, you know, some rich people, you know, installing in their somewhere on their property uh, to ensure that people aren't flying drones up and over. I know uh, a little while ago there was a guy who took a drone up above the Apple construction of their big circular uh, compound. Uh, I would imagine companies like that, in order to keep people from flying over and shooting unauthorized footage, they'll just be willing to strike your drone from the sky if it's coming into an area that they don't want you coming into. Um, so I guess now along alongside seeing no trespassing signs, we're also going to see no drone flight signs uh, or beware of the you know AUD system. Uh, we will take your drone down. And there are actually some other pretty sweet looking systems uh, that use lasers to take drones completely out of the sky from upwards well over 500 yards away um in fact i'll put there's a video i found by the wall street journal uh that has footage of these laser drones and actually they're shooting the dji phantoms the you know little white and red quadcopters out of the sky hit them with a laser takes about two seconds and the thing literally bursts into flames um and of course drops out of the sky at that point so really kind of neat very futuristic weaponry looking stuff um and it's interesting that the proliferation of these drones seems to be driving this particular industry uh so that's that's just interesting i guess i should say um in addition to that, Sony also seems poised to enter the drone marketplace. Um, I'm not going to get into too much because I can't find many specs on the drone, but they did put out a press release. Um, basically, that they're going to be putting out their own drone, and they had a picture of the thing, and it, it actually kind of looks like a miniature airplane. Uh, so it looks kind of cool, and knowing Sony, they always have great sensors and things like that, so it may actually be a pretty cool drone um, and, and definitely one that looks like it's going to work a little bit differently from the traditional, you know, octocopter or quadcopter, uh, that you're seeing most people, um, use these days. So moving on from the anti-drone combat systems, we have some news. Samsung, uh, is still, uh, sort of handling Apple, uh, or I should say selling more units than Apple in the smartphone market. Um, Samsung's market share has fallen a little bit over the past quarter, and Apple's has gained steam, but Samsung still shipped pretty well over 30 million more devices than the Apple iPhone did uh, during the second quarter of 2015. Apple iPhone was something around 47 million, if I'm if I'm pulling the numbers off the top of my head correctly, whereas uh, Samsung did something like 72 or 73 million units sold and shipped, I should say. Um, so, but Apple is gaining on Samsung. I remember Samsung has a few more devices than Apple. Um, so it's interesting to watch these two sort of super heavyweights, if you will, battle it out in the smartphone marketplace. Um, so Samsung still definitely rules Apple, uh, but with the iPhone gaining steam, it's getting more and more competitive. And obviously, um, it was very, very competitive as Samsung gained on Apple and eventually overtook Apple. Uh, but now Apple seems to be catching back up to Samsung. Uh, my personally, my hope is just that they that the battle remains neck and neck. You know, Samsung stays a little ahead, Apple gets a little ahead, Samsung back ahead. Um, because I think as long as those two companies or, or two companies in general are just duking it out, we get the better and better and better phones. So let them fight and let us win. I love that idea. So 
an interesting little article uh, over on CNET.com. Again, I'll have it linked over on tutvid.com slash wegeeks slash episode 24. And another thing uh, that I, I want to move on to here is this pretty cool set of earbuds. It's actually been out for, well, the news has been out for a few weeks. Uh, there was a pretty big Kickstarter that happened, I want to say two weeks ago, it may have been three weeks ago. A company called Doppler Labs has developed this set of earbuds uh, that essentially allows you to put a volume knob on the world around you into your ear. Uh, these little earbuds, you plug them in, and you can raise or lower the volume of everything around you. You can, in fact, mute everything around you if you want. So it's a, the, the earbuds have a controller inside of them. You take it takes the sound in, it sort of digitizes the sound, and then feeds it through to your ear in you know milliseconds. So it's it's virtually no difference at all from the the sound as it happens outside of you to boom, you hearing it in your ear. But the really really cool thing about these earbuds is it looks like they're going to have essentially what amounts to a full equalizer uh, system built into them. So you can accentuate or tweak sounds so that you can hear things exactly the way you want to hear them. Um, one of the ways I heard it described was think about it at a concert. You have the mixing board guy, the soundboard guy, and he's adjusting bass and treble and volume and, you know, left and right, front and back balance, all that kind of stuff. Well, imagine if you can do that right there within your ear. So you go to that very same concert and you just look, there's there's too much stinking bass here. Well, you can kill some of the bass as it comes through your, your Doppler Labs earbuds, or you can increase the bass if you don't think there's enough. Uh, things like that. It looks like it just connects to a smartphone app where you can adjust all this different stuff. You can you know, sort of raise or lower different sounds around you. I mean, imagine being um, on, I don't know, on a train and the sound of the wheels hitting the track is so repetitive and it's driving you crazy. Boom. You just go into your app, you filter that sound right out, and you won't hear it anymore. Or, you know, that 12-hour flight from you know New York City to wherever, um, the, the, a child is just screaming, you know, in coach class for eight hours straight. Doppler Lab earbuds, hey, no problem at all. You just filter that sound right out, get rid of it, and you have your flight in total peace while everyone around you suffers with the sound of that. So they really, really seem cool. I don't know how much they're going to cost. Um, the Kickstarter had different prices depending on how much money you put down. Um, but we'll see what they cost when they actually come to market. Uh, but definitely really cool. I'll have a link to the website, to their website on my website, as well as a YouTube video kind of explaining what they are, how they work, all that good stuff. Uh, but definitely something pretty cool. Doppler Labs earbuds. They actually have two different products, but these earbuds seem like they are incredible and definitely, I mean, you want to talk about a futuristic product, I can see technology like this becoming very, very important into uh, the future. So uh, last but not least, maybe the biggest news as it pertains to this podcast at least is VidCon. So I said, I mentioned at the beginning of this whole thing that Howard wasn't here this week. So I'm flying solo. That's cool. Howard is out at VidCon. Uh, he works for uh, his company Fullscreen, and I believe that's the reason he's out there. Um, I'm going to get him on the phone in just a moment, and we're going to talk to him about VidCon. Um, but as far as I understand, VidCon is essentially a big convention where a bunch of YouTube viewers get together and chase around and try to hang out with the YouTube content providers. So if you're a big shot in the YouTube community, you got a bunch of followers, you go there, you can hang out with your people, you can go visit with other high up YouTubers um, and have a great time. I've never been to a VidCon before. I'm actually thinking about looking into 
going to VidCon next year uh, because a little secret, I've never actually met Howard face-to-face. We've known each other for about seven or eight years, but it's only it's been a strictly digital uh, relationship. We've never met face-to-face. I don't know how tall or short he is. He doesn't know how tall or short I am. Um, so something like VidCon where you can get together and meet these people face-to-face really sounds pretty cool. Um, but that being said, I don't really see the point to a conference like this, um, which is what makes me think there's just a big part of it that I'm not quite understanding. Um, but that being said, like like I mentioned before, I think it's something that I'm going to try to fly over to LA or Las Vegas or Anaheim or wherever it's happening next year. I mean, Anaheim, LA, same thing, right? Um, so I think that I'm going to try to fly over and check it out if for nothing, I believe that they also offer courses and classes, panels, workshops, things like that for content providers on YouTube. Um, and that would definitely be cool to see what you know the uber successful on YouTube are doing to promote themselves, to work, to build up their audiences, to get big, to get huge, to get popular, to drive advertisers and sponsors and things like that. All that kind of stuff uh, really, really interests me. So with that in mind, I'm going to dial up Howard here. And uh, give me a second. I will get him on the line. So what's going on, Howard? How is it out there in Anaheim for VidCon? It's pretty crazy. There's, I'm surrounded by like 13,000 teenage girls getting trampled on. But, you know, it's a pretty good conference for the most part. You never you never knew you were that popular, right? You got 13,000 teenage girls surrounding you ready to trample on you. It's, it's insane. Yeah, really. <laughs> so what I mean I guess start off by telling us what what is VidCon it's basically a YouTube conference that's based in Anaheim and right well right now it's mostly like a fandom so a lot of popular YouTubers are here and people chasing them all over the place but there's also a lot of business that goes down which is what I'm hoping to do Right. Okay. Um, and and why? Besides the fact that you would be there for your own business stuff, um, why are you there? Are you there with full screen? I mean, everyone who or most of the people listening to the podcast know you work for full screen. Are you there as an official representative of them, or like what? What are you doing at VidCon? Yeah, I'm mostly here with full screen and catching up with friends I've known since the beginning days of YouTube. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, is the convention center pretty big? Pretty big, yes. I don't know how many square feet it is, but it's pretty massive. Gotcha. And now, what, like, how, how does it work? What goes on? So you go in, are the? I mean, I've I've seen on Twitter and Instagram and things people posting stuff about going to different panels. Um, is it different conference rooms? Is it just like a massive meet and greet? I mean, what what is there for the average YouTube uh, listener, and what is there there for like the, you and I, a YouTube creator? It's a little bit of both. There's a massive expo hall, which has a lot of different booths from different companies and manufacturers and things like that, which you can, you know, talk to other companies and stuff. But on the second floor is where the creators and industry badges for people go. And that's where all the panels are and where the conferences and sessions and things like that. Gotcha. Okay. So is that something that's, it, it's a three-day thing. Today's the first day, correct? Right, today's the first official day. Right, and today's Thursday, by the way, that we're recording this. Um, So today's the first day. Is full screen up there involved in those panels, or are you on the main floor? It sounds like you're mixing it up with kind of the masses. Actually, we're all over the place. We have a booth on the Expo Hall, and upstairs we actually are hosting the movie night. So every night this week, tonight, tomorrow, and then I think on Saturday, we are playing a movie 
I think one of them is that new Pixels movie with Adam Sandler, and there's a few other movies that we're playing. Oh, gotcha. Okay, nice. Um, so I guess your your full three days are going to be there working with full screen, or when when do you get time off to kind of go around and and visit with the YouTubers that you're looking for, or how how does that work? Are you are you completely taken up working on full screen duties, or or do you have free time? It's mostly working, but when things are a little bit slow, I'll kind of wander around the floor and see what's up. And then of course nights are pretty much free. I have a business dinner tonight with not full screen, another company. But, yeah, it's on and off. Gotcha, okay. So, I mean, what kind of famous YouTubers have been through the full-screen booth? Um, who has been there? Jason Horton, Andrea Russett. Uh, we had a few drop out at the last minute. Gotcha. I, I mean, can't it, the other ones. I mean, it seems like everyone that I see on YouTube is pretty much there. I mean, how many people do you think are there at the, you know, on the conference room floor as a whole? I think I heard there's about 25 or 30,000 people. Wow. Okay. That's pretty cool. I, there's going to be a Beam meetup at some point tomorrow, I heard. Um, if, you, if, you oh, really? fo- if you follow Casey Neistat on Twitter, um, they haven't announced the location. But all I know is they said they, they've ordered like 500 pizzas and there's going to be like 1,200 t-shirts they're giving away. Mm, interesting. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, so I don't know. Obviously, the location, like I said, they haven't announced it yet, but um, it looks like it'll be kind of interesting. So that's pretty cool. So it's basically just, you know, you're getting together. Um, anyone anyone interesting that you've had sit-downs with, any kind of collaborations that you've thought of or people you've run into who would potentially be doing collaborations with you and the videos that you're creating in the future? So far, no. The problem is I've been friends with so many of these big YouTubers since, like, 2006, 2007, and getting to actually see them and catch up with them is very difficult so i'm still working on that gotcha okay wow well that's 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 really cool and you you brought your wife out there with you correct yep she's with me as well yeah so just the two of you hanging out and and i mean just i mean the vibe in general is there a lot of cosplay is it just a lot of kids running around i mean i it's it, it seems like it's almost like a comic con but not at all like a comic con there's very little cosplay it's mostly just teenagers running around chasing their favorite YouTubers. Gotcha, okay. And and most of those popular YouTubers are not necessarily conducting business, at least yet, as much as catching up with the fans? I think for them it's a little bit of both. They do have business meetings, but it's mostly catching up with fans and signing autographs and stuff. Gotcha, gotcha. All right, cool, man. Yeah, well, no, I just wanted to catch up with you and, and you know, have have this little bit that we can uh, share in the podcast. It sounds like uh, you're having a good time out there and... Uh, hopefully you make it back to Colorado safe and sound, and uh, I, hopefully the business meeting goes well tonight, dinner, whatever. Um, and yeah, we'll uh, we'll we'll be back at it like like nothing ever happened next week. Totally, and maybe I'll explain my fun travel like adventures next week on the podcast. Yeah, that'll be cool. I mean, you're only the thir- a third of the way through uh, VidCon, so who knows what'll come of the next couple of days. <laughs> yeah, really. Cool, man. All right. Well, I will. Uh, I'll talk to you later, and uh, uh, hopefully everybody will enjoy having heard something uh, from the floor of VidCon. Awesome. Okay. Talk to you later. All right. Take it easy. Bye. So there you have it. That's Howard live from the floor of the, I believe it's the Anaheim Convention Center is where it's going down this year. Um, And I certainly hope that him and his wife, Michelle, are having a great time and, in fact, have a good rest of the week there. Thursday, Friday, Saturday it is. Uh, This week, what would that be, July 23rd, 24th, 25th? 
uh, and then a safe flight back to Colorado. Uh, so that's VidCon. That's kind of what's happening in, in the VidCon world. Um, and uh, I don't know. Have you ever been to VidCon? Why don't you tweet at me? Let me know. Use the hashtag WeGeeks. Um, and was it a good experience, bad experience? Uh, am I totally wrongheaded about VidCon? Do I just misunderstand what it is altogether? I'd love to get your input uh, on something like that. So moving on from news, let's talk about kind of the, the theme of the show and what I really wanted to talk about on the WeGeeks podcast this week. And that is the future of of Photoshop in web design. And like I mentioned at the beginning of this whole thing, um, I came across this article a couple weeks ago now talking about web design being dead. And again, the article, it was a bunch of, it, it was really kind of clickbaity. Um, but I mean, the, the author of the article did seem to indicate a lot of death-like changes that would be coming to web design as an industry. And I readily concede uh, that web design is changing a lot. It is so different just than it was than it was two years ago, and certainly than it was five years ago. The pro- proliferation of things like Squarespace and WordPress, um, and even online like online WordPress and Blogger and different blogging platforms like that, and even micro blogging platforms like Tumblr, uh, Medium, things like that have have really provided users with a very easy way to get content out there to share their creative creations and also anything that they want to write. It's You almost get more interaction if you have a decent number of friends on Facebook or a decent number of followers on Facebook and you write sort of a Facebook note and post it there rather than just trying to start an offshoot blog that you're going to post something on once every three months. So all these different social networks as well as microblogging sites have really changed the face of web design and then attached to that the 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 steady stream of really really easy to use and effective and responsive and everything you would want these frameworks like squarespace and wordpress um that are very inexpensive and like i said easy to use and you have a very rapidly changing face of web design so i wanted to talk a little bit about the future of photoshop specifically in web design and where it is Um, also taking into account things like skeuomorphic design Skeuomorphic design has fallen from the good graces of just about everybody. And granted, there are some designers out there who I've seen who have been very against this idea of skeuomorphic design. And for those of you that aren't familiar with what skeuomorphic design is, skeuomorphic design was uh, Apple using a green felt background for the Game Center uh, or Play Center, whatever it was called back in the day, a few years ago, <laughs> back in the day, um, that, that green felt background when you don't really need it. It's it's simply there. It's a design element that's only there to look pretty. It doesn't really serve a purpose. It's, it's not utilitarian. It just drinks up additional bandwidth or processing power, things like that. So skeuomorphic design is out. We don't see these big, fancy user interfaces anymore. Um, you know, uh, uh, an article about how to design a killer, you know, radio interface is not what it would have been even two or three years ago. So skeuomorphic design has moved along, and flat, simple design is what is popular. Very utilitarian, square-edged. Um, almost credit Microsoft a little bit with their Metro uh, theme. They really kind of in a certain sort of sense, led the way with this kind of design. Very blocky, very easy to swap from a desktop environment to a mobile environment, which I know was part of Microsoft's driving force in that whole Metro 
style or whatever you want to call it where it's just very block you know it's, it's blocks on blocks on blocks that can all be reshuffled and resorted and easy to swipe and easy to press and you know looks looks like it belongs on the web browser and also looks just as good on your your phone or your smart your smartphone your mobile device whatever um, so flat design is in and it's almost to the point where because you're not worried about creating these photorealistic this or photorealistic that you know I mean a photorealistic icon used to be drop-dead gorgeous and so amazing and everybody wanted one um, but now you know people want flat icons just give me a simple icon you know a circle with the Facebook logo punched out in the middle of it uh, you know a rounded rectangle with you know a book icon on it or whatever it may be so flat design is really in, and it's almost gotten to the point where Adobe Illustrator can cover all of your, any any graphical needs, any sort of, well, I shouldn't say graphical needs, any web graphic needs when it comes to those little design elements. So much of what you're going to be designing as far as visual elements on your website, it, almost all of it these days is created with HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. Almost all of it. You're not going to create a layout in Photoshop anymore and use the slice tool. I, I almost wonder why Adobe even still has the slice tool in Photoshop. It's an awful tool. You shouldn't use it. Um, but the, the the slice tool is out. Um, and, and a lot of these these, these simple uh, designs can just be done in Illustrator. In fact, when it comes to something like icons, you can just use an icon font and have something that's responsive, vector, fully scalable. Um, I've never been a huge fan of SVG, but SVG is another effective web vector uh, format. Uh, but anyway, so Adobe Illustrator looks like it can cover a lot of those graphical needs. However, a lot of modern websites are also very rich media dependent, both video and photo. So when it comes to these photographics and these photo banners and these headers and these sliders and these galleries, you are still going to need Photoshop for something like that. And Photoshop is definitely a tool uh, when it comes to that. So I mean, for me, Photoshop these days, I still, every website that I start begins in Photoshop. It has for as long as I've been any kind of designer worth his weight in salt, but it still is. Uh, my beginning point for any website um, and, unless I'm going to something that is incredibly theme based you know like I know oh that's the WordPress theme that I'm getting or yup that's the Squarespace theme that I'm using then I kind of know my basic layout but I'll still a lot of times open it up and just draw simple layouts um, if for nothing else just to play around with user experience ideas. So I'll draw out, hey, here's where the header's gonna be. I want the blog post to filter through here. I want my sidebar to be here. And I know that I want you know, these specific links up on the top right because I know most people when they're looking at the content, uh, they're, they're gonna want this link there. Or maybe something as simple as, um, I'm always gonna have the best information in a specific article you know, sort of at this point in my articles. So in conjunction with that, I want, you know, my newsletter to pop up or my newsletter sign up form to pop up in the sidebar there. Or when I'm that far scrolled down the page, I want my newsletter to pop up from the bottom. So building kind of like the user experience model, I still do that in Photoshop. I sketch everything with my Wacom tablet um, and it essentially becomes my whiteboard. Um, that being said, there is still a lot of graphic creation that you're going to do in Photoshop, you know, setting featured images, for instance, or thumbnails in Squarespace, but a featured image in WordPress, you know, which essentially is going to serve as the thumbnail and the header image for your content 
postings uh, on your WordPress site. You still need to create them. Uh, all of the different imagery that you're going to be working with within your specific article, you're still going to be uh, using Photoshop for that. And by the way, if you're actually creating a WordPress theme uh, from scratch, all of that is going to begin in Photoshop as a as a graphic tool, as a layout tool, everything. For me, it all starts in Photoshop. That goes for if I'm creating a custom theme for a company that has very specific needs and needs a, uh, a theme or a website tailored exactly to what they want and really what the company needs, uh, or whether or not I'm working with a theme that I've bought or uh, maybe a theme that I've already created. It all begins uh, in Photoshop. So with that in mind, I do want to talk about some of the Adobe tools um, just because there are some of them that seem pretty darn useful and maybe they're not quite there yet, but some of them show some serious promise uh, for the future. Um, and this is sort of Adobe's suite of web tools. And there's a number of Adobe Edge things or, or applications, I guess I should call them, that we're not going to touch on uh, directly, but we're going to hit a couple things here um, just to kind of talk about some of the options you have as far as Adobe tools. And these are all tools that are linked in with Photoshop and you sort of have the shared assets library and I'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, but they allow you to get your graphics from Photoshop to these particular layout programs quickly. So the first one is Adobe Animate. Um, and it's an application that allows you to create complex animated pieces that are going to essentially work as small uh, web applications. They run on HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. Personally, I haven't done much of anything in Adobe Animate. I do have it. I've opened it once or twice. Um, it's just another tool in Adobe's web toolbox. Again, like I said, I haven't done anything in it. Something worth uh, looking into, in my mind, if you're interested in creating rich um, Flash-like experiences on your website. Um, but, I mean, I'm only really talking about this because I, I feel obliged to. In fact, I, I have it here at the beginning of all of this just to kind of get it out of the way. Uh Honestly, it's an application that I see Adobe killing uh, or phasing out in the upcoming years. I don't know that it's something that people are going to be that interested in. Either that or they're going to really have to change it. It just seems so specific um, that it's something that is going to just be uh, kind of folded into something like Adobe Edge Reflow or Adobe Muse. Uh, so speaking of Adobe Edge Reflow, this is a responsive design tool. Adobe Edge Reflow is for designing responsive websites. Uh, it helps you create a layout of responsive boxes that are going to adjust themselves uh, as your browser window scrolls, you know, is, is, is huge, is really wide, or as it just folds down all the way to the size of a mobile application. Um, so essentially, you're going to use this uh, application to create a responsive website layout. Now note, I said responsive website layout because it's only really, at least right now, it's not going to actually create a responsive website for you, just a fully functioning responsive mock-up. So it's it's this very simple, easy to use environment um, where you're going to drag everything around. You've got, you're going to you know, drag out your grid system and create all the boxes in the world that you would ever want. You move these boxes around and all the code behind the scenes is swapped around and all the ordering is set correctly and changed automatically. Um, but you know it is still just that responsive mock-up that you're creating, not really a fully responsive website that you can export from Adobe Edge Reflow. 
Um, like I'd mentioned before, uh, Edge Reflow, like the like the rest of the Adobe applications that we're going to talk about here, is joined with Photoshop, and that's going to allow you uh, this extended use of all the assets, libraries, um, all that kind of stuff. You're working with graphics in Photoshop. You can seamlessly share them right over with Adobe Edge Reflow. Um, I kind of hate all these assets libraries, to be honest with you. Um, I don't really know of any great designers who get all hooked into the creative cloud system and all the purported advantages of it. I mean, look around at the great designers. They work with talent. They don't work with the... Um, how should I how should I refer to them? They don't work with kind of the gimmicky tools that Adobe has to offer. You know, a lot of, a lot of great photographers they don't care about the new gimmicky features of Photoshop. They use Photoshop for what they use Photoshop for, and they have the way that they do things. And it's not uncommon to see great photographers using Adobe CS4 or Adobe CS2. I, I remember just a couple of years ago seeing photographers use Adobe CS2. That's you know Feather Adobe CS we're talking about feather um so um it, i don't know i, I maybe it's going to be something that catches on in the future maybe adobe's a little ahead of their time it's it's not really conventional to me it seems very quirky um you know why can't i just save a psd and drag it in if i or drag it from you know photoshop into uh, edge reflow um and i know all the smart object advantages where if it's a smart object and certainly you drag it into adobe application you should be able to double click and it's going to open it up back in photoshop you can edit it in photoshop and if there are multiple instances of the smart object all of them are going to update i get it i get it i get it um but for something like a graphic you're not going to have uh, 80,000 instances of the same graphic on your web page. Maybe you have one big sprite file, but I'm not sure how sprites work with something like Adobe Edge Reflow. Um, but I don't know. I don't think it's caught on yet, this whole asset library thing. And quite frankly, the whole creative cloud idea, not, not CC. And I know CC stands for creative cloud. I mean the actual upload your files into the creative cloud asset library, and you're going to be able to use them all across everything uh, on Adobe. I don't see great creative professionals using that. I see people who uh, kind of want to be great Adobe professionals and a lot of, of course, the Adobe evangelists. But I mean, you look at the work they're doing and it's not great work. It's eh work. And I hate to bash other designers. I'm not really bashing them though. It's just, it's not the best of the best. I want to see the best of the best designers using this stuff. Then I'll think about it. But, you know, you, you can't get caught up in the technology over technique. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Uh, but there are, I mean, there's a ton of amazing looking features to bring it back to Edge Reflow um, that I'm not even familiar with and certainly not as familiar as I should be with. Um, and it is an application I want to familiarize myself with a little bit more so I can, you know, do some tutorials on it and share uh, with everybody some of the, what looks to be really incredible features of Adobe Edge Reflow. Um, you know, you've got access to Adobe's Edge fonts, uh, which is well over 500 web fonts um, that you can use in your web design, of course. Uh, CSS3 filters, you know, blurring and all these different things. Um, it, granted, the blurring does look a little um, cheap, especially with some of the fade in out effects um, that you can do. Uh, but there's, I mean, there's all kinds of little little features. You can output CSS for individual elements, uh, which is a little weird because I don't, I still don't think you can output CSS for an entire page that you create. Um, and I would want to be able to output CSS, including media queries that are going to detect, okay, this person is on a mobile device and the screen is, you know, 480 pixels wide or whatever. I mean, I know most iPhones, retina displays, as well as a lot of Androids and things like that. I mean, the, the pixel count is off the charts now. Um, but, you know, I would, I would just like to, you know, know how much of that I can export 
and also uh, I would want to know that I'm exporting really good code. I'm still very scarred by uh, a lot of the way that Dreamweaver has coded things over the years with their just straight-up WYSIWYG visual editor. It's not very good. It's not the best way to write code. In fact, it's very much not the best way to write code. Um, as well as Photoshop, exporting websites from Photoshop, exporting the HTML. You, you used to be able to create your full mock-up in, in Photoshop. You would slice it up and you would export the HTML from Photoshop. And it was just the worst tangled mess spider web of code and just yuck and disgustingness. Um, and, and then Photoshop changed. And now they export with CSS styling instead of just these horrific image and table-based layouts that it was for the longest time. And it's still a mess of code and just disgustingness. So I'm not really comfortable with something else writing the code for me. But again, remember Adobe Edge Reflow is really a responsive layout tool that, oh, by the way, you can output CSS for individual elements for as well. Um, so again, I really should do some tutorials on this application. Um, it'll help me to understand it a lot more and hopefully also help you to understand it a little bit more. So we've gone through Adobe Animate and Adobe Edge Reflow. We also have something called Adobe Muse. Um, now, Adobe Muse is really the tool for designers who don't know how to code and have no interest in learning how to code. It's going to help them to publish really great, as far as the tutorials and things that I've seen. Um, of course, a really great website depends on the design and user experience that you develop. But you have the ability to, to create and publish really amazing and even dynamic websites without writing any code at all. That's really cool, especially right if you don't want to uh, go out and actually learn how to code or you don't want to be bothered with coding. Um, now, like I said before with Edge Reflow, and really it's the case here with Muse, these kind of WYSIWYG, what you see is what you get, WYSIWYG editors always scare the crap out of me. Um, now, Hopefully Adobe's gotten a lot better. I have not exported a website from Adobe Muse, mainly because I don't have the time and I still I would still just rather write the code myself. Um, but anyway, Muse will let you create menus, slideshows, even trigger animations. Like as you're scrolling down the page, you can say sort of when I when I scroll down to a certain point in the page, fade these images in or fade this button in. Uh, you can create parallax scrolling. There's all kinds of fairly robust things you can do with Muse, um, and it's really really cool. Uh, you can also attach a, a number of widgets to your website. You can throw a blog into it, uh, you know, working like scheduling calendars, all kinds of things like that. Uh, of course, video players, all that kind of stuff just kind of goes without saying. Uh, and once you have your site designed, you can just FTP it right to your web host from Muse. There's a drop-down menu where you basically say publish, bam, FTP, and send it right up to your web host to live on the web. And you can even go ahead and edit and continue to edit, I should say, that live website within Muse and just upload those files as you make changes. So it's a really, really interesting might I say intriguing application for someone who just doesn't know how to write code and has no interest in writing code. Uh, but as I said before, personally, I like to know what I'm writing and how it's affecting the website that I'm working on. And I know my recommendation to you or anybody just getting started uh, in web design would be learn HTML, CSS, and JavaScript, JavaScript slash jQuery. jQuery is really a library of JavaScript. You will not 
uh, regret learning those coding languages. They're sort of the baseline. They're fairly easy to pick up and they are incredibly useful. We just If it's something as simple as going into your WordPress theme and tweaking it, knowing that stuff is so helpful. You don't need to worry about all the MySQL database stuff, PHP server-side code. Don't worry about that. It's three things, HTML, CSS, jQuery slash JavaScript. Uh, so that's Adobe Muse. It really is just a very, very visual website designer um, and you don't really have to worry about code. At least that's what Adobe is telling us. So the last thing, the last Adobe application that I'm going to talk about is Dreamweaver. And now Dreamweaver is really... Dreamweaver is the poo, the grand poobah, right? It's the it's where it all started, as far as WYSIWYG editors are confirmed, it, or, or concerned. Excuse me. It is the mothership, if you will, of website design and HTML editors. I know there was Microsoft Front Page years and years and years ago. Microsoft Front Page was garbage. It worked and it, it just worked in a very bizarre uh, format. It added all kinds of unnecessary code, and really, all these HTML editors wrote very clunky code. I mean, forget about standards compliance. That was, I mean, we didn't even talk about that years ago when uh, Microsoft Front Page was uh, a, a relevant thing. And even when uh, Dreamweaver was much smaller. So, uh, I mean, Dreamweaver really started way back when with Macromedia and then Adobe bought Macromedia and in buying Macromedia, of course, acquired Adobe. Uh, excuse me, uh, uh, when Adobe bought Macromedia, they acquired Dreamweaver, I should say. Um so Dreamweaver's always been that go-to website editor for people who wanted this good balance of code writing ability, right? I can see the back end. I can see the code. I can mess with the code if I want. Um, but I definitely have this really visual design editor as well. It is not at all the drag-and-drop, plug-and-play nature of Adobe Muse. It's just not. You are very much constrained by block-level elements, by divs, by table cells. You know, it, we're talking in HTML terms by articles and sections, things like that. You're very much constrained by that stuff with Adobe Dreamweaver, whereas Adobe Muse is very much uh, free-flowing. It reminds me a little bit of a much more beautiful version of Adobe Go Lives. I believe Adobe Go Live called it the Grid Editor or something like that. Um, Adobe Go Live uh, has been dead and gone for quite some time now. Um, but it reminds me a little bit of that uh, for those of you that may or may not have used Adobe Go Live. Um, so Adobe Dreamweaver is still – Adobe Dreamweaver basically would be where you take that responsive layout that you created in Adobe Edge Reflow and you write all of the code for it. Uh, you know, you make sure those media queries are falling into place where you, you need them to fall into place. And you might be thinking, well, why wouldn't I just start in Dreamweaver and write it all? And, you know, why do I need this visual layout created by Adobe Edge Reflow? Well, Adobe Edge Reflow essentially makes sure that you have all the graphics you need, that the layout that you're envisioning is actually going to work and be responsive the way that you expect it to be responsive, and that as the window is changing size, uh, everything is falling into place where it's supposed to fall into place. So you're not getting to a point in your design where it looks great at, uh, you know, at, at 1,920 pixels wide, but then as soon as you get smaller, it looks kind of wonky and bad all the way until you get to like 760 pixels wide. You don't want that. You want it to look great from 920 all the way down to, you know, 480 or 640 or whatever width you decide to go down to. Um, so Adobe Edge Reflow sort of provides you with the blueprint. Adobe Dreamweaver is where you're actually going to write the code and build that website in accordance with kind of the schematic that you've built in Adobe Edge Reflow. So Adobe Dreamweaver is still very much the code editor and the HTML editor. It's not a pure code editor like uh, Coda 
or uh, brackets or I mean there's there's a bajillion and a half code editors out there but it, it, it has a great code editor but it also is much heavier because it has this huge visual design editor as well you can link your CSS files in you can link to I mean a million and a half different kinds of files uh, from Dreamweaver you know, create your CSS files create JavaScript files, create all kinds of different files uh, in Dreamweaver um, and it's a very very powerful um, tool in and of itself so there also is something called McCall, which is not an Adobe app. McCall, you can check it out at McCall.co. And it I've never used it, but it's something that I've had on my radar for a little while uh, that I may end up buying to use. But again, I just don't use a lot of these interface-based website building tools that are writing code for me. Uh, but it looks it looks like it's this amazing design and code application all in one. So you, you have this very simple uh, interface. You can you know drop in like a 960 grid or an 1140 grid or you know whatever size grid you want, work within a grid-based system, draw your boxes, drop in graphics, drop in text, drop in all kinds of stuff. Ensure that your website is responsive, you know, build in breakpoints. Uh, so as your website is, you know, as the browser window is shrinking your website is you know clicking and breaking where it needs to break and readjust and rebuild itself um, and it allows you to publish out you know semantic standards compliant HTML and CSS instantly um, now again I've never used it I don't know how great the code is naturally I'm skeptical as I said um, but it seems to be a pretty worthy adversary to Adobe's tools and definitely something that it looks like you should check out uh, at the very least. Look into it again, mccall.co. I'll have the link over on my website, tutvid.com slash wegeeks slash episode 24. So now that we've talked about those different tools and kind of what they are, I mean, that was a big step for me because I remember when Adobe first announced all these tools, they kind of all just mashed, or not tools, applications, I should say. They all just kind of mashed together into one. And you could have said, you know, what's the difference between Adobe Muse and Adobe Edge Reflow? And I would have been, I don't know. I mean, Adobe Muse sounds like a storyboarding tool and Adobe Edge Reflow sounds like uh, something for reflowing edges. Um, but so, I mean, I think it's important to talk about all the individual applications and where I think they're good and where I see them being deficient. Here's how I see them all fitting together. Like I said, Dreamweaver is not the responsive layout builder that Edge Reflow is, but you would take that responsive mockup from Edge Reflow and write the code for it in Dreamweaver. Whereas Adobe Muse almost seems to be this application that works independent of all the other tools. You create some graphics, you sketch out basically what you want your layout to look like in Photoshop, and then you take the graphics over that you need from Photoshop into Adobe Muse. Um, and then Adobe Muse is going to, you know, allow you to drag and drop the elements where you want them to be and code and, and not really code, but, you know, drop in what needs to be dropped in with code. Um, so for instance, gone are the days that you create a navigation bar in Photoshop and use those images in uh, your website. You would instead, you would code that in if the, if the button's a gradient or if the button's a solid color. All of that gets written in with CSS and you'd use a, a pseudo class selector to when you roll over that button, bam, the background color changes, right? You don't need images for that stuff anymore. It's far less uh, bandwidth intensive, so you're not drawing as much power from your servers, things like that. You're reserving more space for more video, more beautiful graphics, things like that. I mean, the trade-off is kind of a joke because images and graphics are going to draw far more bandwidth um, than something like that. 
but it still helps. It helps, and it certainly helps with mobile devices that are going to load your website over a cellular network where you don't know how fast the cellular network is. And you also need to take into consideration that a user browsing your website doesn't want to use up all of their data plan just visiting your website. So the more of this stuff that, you know, you can create a heavily graphical layout in Photoshop, but then when you start writing the code for that, and it looks like Adobe Muse allows you to do this, as well as, of course, if you know how to write the code in Dreamweaver, you can do this. You want to code as much of that graphical stuff as you can. You know, the background color. If you don't need to use an image, don't use an image. If it's just a plain solid color, bam, you know, that's a quick CSS. Uh, you know, it's one line of CSS code, done deal. Uh, the same thing with, you know, setting widths and borders and colored boxes and the majority of form design and all kinds of stuff uh, can be done just with CSS and HTML. And even if you add JavaScript uh, slash jQuery, you can do a ton more uh, when it comes to that. Uh, so that's how I see everything fitting together. Adobe Animate, I don't see how that fits into anything, to be honest with you. Um, if you've used Adobe Animate and you think it's a great application, I would love to hear from you. I'd love to hear what you think about it. Um, but that's it. So Photoshop has been and in my mind will continue to be where websites are born. Uh, it's just that web design has changed a lot for the amateur web, not really amateur web designer, but amateur web user who just wants a website. No longer they have to go and hire a web designer. They can just get something like Squarespace. Um, but a big company or even a small town company that has specific needs for a website and has a specific schematic for a website or a marketing plan, they still need a designer who can take their website and craft it into what they want it to be. And that even goes for a site that is creating either a heavily customized Squarespace site or is creating a WordPress site and needs somebody to really tweak and edit that WordPress theme. So that's what I think about it. Um, Photoshop is where all the initial designs are going to start. And then from there, you could go and play around with layout in Edge Reflow uh, or even McCall and, and make a little bit more headway as far as the actual graphic design of the website is concerned as well. Uh, so that's, that's kind of that. That's what I think about that. Um, Tweet me what you think about it. You know, what is web design changing? Have you used any of these applications? Uh, and there's a million questions I could ask here. So I'll just leave it at that. Have you used any of these applications? And is it like a yay or a nay? You love it? Do you hate it? I would love to hear uh, what you think about it. So with that out of the way, as with everything else that we've talked about. Um, I want to get to the winner or loser of the week. Howard and I always do a winner and loser of the week. Uh, we usually do a quick six as well, where we sort of grill each other with a quick six questions. Uh, but obviously, that can't happen this week because Howard's not here, and I'm not going to quick six myself because that's kind of lame. So I'm just going to do a winner and loser of the week, and instead of a word of the week, I'm going to give a question of the week so I don't bastardize the word of the week because, again, Howard ain't here. So my, my winner of the week is kind of an interesting story. The Associated Press has be begun uploading uh, over half a million historical video clips to YouTube um, and has given access to more than one million minutes of digitized, excuse me, that's difficult to say, digitized film footage of notable events. Uh, this project is being done in partnership with uh, a channel called British Movie Tone. I'm assuming it's a company really called uh, British Movie Tone, uh, one, which is one of the world's largest archives of historical newsreel footage. Um, essentially, they want to create this uh, on-demand visual encyclopedia, um, and it showcases an incredible array of moments and people and events that 
were huge and influential. Um, and it is the largest upload of historical news content on the video sharing platform to date. So, I mean, you can go and you can see video about the San Francisco earthquake in 1906, uh, the Hindenburg disaster, uh, Pearl Harbor, the bombing of Pearl Harbor, uh, the Titanic, and just so much more. I mean, Elvis Presley, Marilyn Monroe, up through the 60s and, and beyond, and, you know, er, stuff earlier than that. It's just all across the board. Really, really cool stuff. Um, I will try to remember to post a link for this uh, over in... Uh, the Tutvid article, tutvid.com slash wegeeks slash episode 24. Definitely, definitely something you should check out. Um, I made sure to subscribe to the channel. It looks like it's just going to be a, a lot of really interesting clips. And a lot of the clips are pretty short. They're like a minute, minute and a half, something like that. Uh, so pretty, pretty, uh, pretty cool stuff, I should say. Not pretty, pretty cool. Uh, now, the loser of the week uh, is Planned Parenthood. Um, and I know last week I had mentioned, or maybe I didn't mention, maybe I mentioned to Howard before the show started, uh, that I wanted to talk about Planned Parenthood and this whole selling body parts thing. I'm not going to get into that. Um, in light of the terrible story about the, the young black woman, Sandra Bland or Blonde, who died in prison, uh, this week, or, or the story that came out about it this week, I should say, uh, the story seems to indicate that either she committed suicide or that it was yet another act of unjustified violence from the police toward the black population in America. Um, so in light of that article, Planned Parenthood tweeted out this, you know, hashtag justice for Sandra Bland, um, and, you know, a link to the article and everything like that, and, uh, you know, essentially crying out for justice for this young woman, right? Very noble, good thing to do uh, if you know the details of the case and this is uh, a platform in which you feel like you can take a stand and do some good. Hey, I've got no problem with that. However, um, virtually every response on Twitter, and I went through a lot of them, there was one pro-Planned Parenthood response. You had dozens, more than dozens at this point, Dozens that I went through, dozens of people pointing out the irony of this business, Planned Parenthood, whose business it is, primary business I should say it is, of taking the life of unborn children, asking for justice uh, for a, a young black woman that died or was killed, whatever, again, whatever the facts of the story are, who knows if we'll ever get the real scoop. Um, but they're just kind of pointing out the irony uh, you know, of that. And of course, in light of this whole Planned Parenthood uh, video that came out with them talking about selling body parts, it really, really smacks of um, pandering to, I'm not really sure who they're pandering to, but it really smacks of the pandering to the general public um, in kind of a, a, a story where you feel like you can't lose just because, you know, especially since the whole Ferguson riot situation, um, you've had all of these stories about violence toward young blacks uh, perpetrated by the police uh, in America come out. And again, no matter what side of that you fall on, and really no matter what side of the, um, you know, pro-life or pro-abortion camp you fall in, uh, it's, it's just a very lowbrow thing to do uh, and something that is... Yeah, I don't know. It just seems it, it seems to be you know it kind of that never never let a good crisis uh, pass you by without taking advantage of it in some way. And it really seems like Planned Parenthood's doing that. And again, in my mind, it just seems incredibly ironic when your business is to take the life of young children. Where's the justice for them? You know, how about that Planned Parenthood? You know, hands up. Uh, you know, per your latest video about crushing fetuses and babies uh, in such a way to preserve body parts. Hands up. Don't crush. You know, how, how about that? Um, so that's my loser of the week. Uh, now, my question of the week, and I'd really like to hear what you guys have to uh, say about this. 
What are your five favorite apps on your smartphone? The five apps that are your go-to apps. I'm actually going to pull up my phone here because I didn't I didn't think about this beforehand. I just came up with this question. Um, and then like not the phone app, not the messages app. Not that that doesn't really count. I would have to say that my five favorite apps are Twitter. I really don't like Facebook on the mobile device, so I, I can't say Facebook. I gotta say Twitter, Snapchat. Instagram, Pocket, and the ESPN app. Those are probably my five most used apps uh, if I'm looking. I mean, I guess I use Google Maps a lot too, but that's kind of, again, uh, not really, a, not that kind of app. Um, you know, I'm, I'm looking for like social media, kind of more entertainment slash work apps. You know what I mean? Not like your web browser, not your phone, not messaging. So, what I mean, or maybe you can throw them in if, if those are really what you're using a ton. Uh, what are your five most used slash favorite apps uh, on your iOS or Android device? I would really love uh, to hear that. So go ahead and tweet that at me or at Howard. Tweet it at me, at Tutvid. Just use the hashtag WeGeeks. Um, and if you're interested in the word of the week, we'll just make it apps. Because, well, there you go. See, I just I just bastard. I just did exactly what I said I wasn't going to do and bastardized the word of the week because Howard's not here to agree with me on the word of the week. But we'll just say the word of the week is apps uh, for the sake of it. And that's it for this one. That is We Geeks episode 24. I'm just peeking through my four pages of notes. Can you hear that? Those are all the notes that I wrote up uh, for the show this week, covering some of the stuff that I thought was interesting to me. Um, it maybe had a little bit of a different flavor than it normally does. Well, I mean, because Howard wasn't here and it was just me talking the whole time. But also, I picked all the stories this week and it was all stuff that I kind of thought was cool and interesting. Um, and not that I don't like stuff that Howard contributes. Um, I do. I think we bring together a, a really interesting mixture of stuff. Um, but yeah, no, I feel like it was, it was a lot of fun. Um, and I also realized while writing the show notes... I never quite write a, the cursive capital T the same way. I, it's an extraordinarily random factoid about myself. I obsess over my handwriting and to the point where I'll just practice my handwriting. But the capital T, the cursive capital T, I write it one way one time, then I write it another way another time. Sometimes it looks like a, an F that's missing the middle, you know, cross through. Um, it's very strange. I don't know. I don't know. What the, what the deal is with that? But anyway, cursive capital T for you. Uh, see you. Learn learn something new every single day. But that's gonna be it for this one episode twenty four of the Week Geeks podcast. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Make sure you go follow us on SoundCloud, soundcloudcom geeks Twitter, iTunes, Stitcher, all the good stuff. Thank you guys so much for listening, and I will see you next week. Take it easy.